Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Tessa. I'm Sam. And joining us today to talk about Spike Lee is our producer, Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Hello. That's right. You guys can't keep me away. I just keep showing showing up <laughs> to not only produce the show, but be on the show because my ego is out of control. <laughs> Fun fact, we actually were just going to do this by ourselves, but then Ryan just like joined the call. And so we were like, all right, I guess we're doing this together. And I even did the homework. (laughs) Are you saying when you did the homework that you did the right thing? Oh, my God. We're going to talk today, like we said, about Spike Lee, who is someone that I was not very familiar with until a couple of years ago, but has been a huge figure in American cinema over the past 30 years. He's directed 24 feature-length films. His production company, 40 Acres and a Mule, has produced over 35. His films often focus on race, police violence, and character drama. He has won so many awards for his work. So today we are going to focus on three of his films that various variations of us have not seen before, Do the Right Thing, Crooklyn, and Clockers. Ryan, what's your relationship with Spike Lee and what has been your history with his work? Came to his work for the first time in an honest way with uh, 25th Hour and Inside Man, which I think were his biggest, like his like 2000s mainstream hits um, that are perceived as somewhat less political than some of his, uh, than maybe his most famous movies or the movies he's most closely associated with. I had seen at least part of Bamboozled in high school, but that was for, uh, I had friends who were edgelords, and so it really wasn't under honest viewing conditions, unfortunately. And that is something I'd circle back to, and then he kind of had a fallow period where all the stuff that he was coming out with, it sort of felt like, well, if I haven't seen you know, his most seminal works, I don't really feel like I'm going to get as much out of something like The Sweet Blood of Jesus or Chai Rock as I would if I had seen those. I just didn't feel like I had the language to approach movies that were like not super critically acclaimed, but like seemed of interest. Those are ones I still want to go back to. But then Black Klansman coming out, you know, it really feels like he's having a sort of you know, a new phase in his career where, again, he's getting sort of mainstream acclaim with making movies that are taking issues head on. Defy Bloods went on to become my favorite movie of that year when it came out. And now that I've seen some more other Vietnam movies that I hadn't seen before, like Apocalypse Now and uh, the the um, Full Metal Jacket. I don't know why I couldn't remember. I, I wanted to say Killer Instinct for some reason, which is... <laughs> <laughs> a video game and not at all related to Full Metal Jacket. But I mean, I think Full Metal Jacket is best forgotten, but that's probably just with, me. What's the one with Robin Williams as the radio show? That's Good Morning Vietnam. Good Morning Vietnam, yeah. Saw that recently. But The Five Bloods, I absolutely loved. He also made, did the uh, filmed version of David Byrne's stay show American Utopia that same year. And so he had two movies on my top 10 list for, I think that was 2020. You know, the last three years, just kind of a blur. Uh, so that's where I am with Spike Lee, more or less. Uh, in 2020, I also watched Do the Right Thing for the first time. Um, we did an episode of my previous podcast, uh, The Shame Files, which has a similar premise to Monkey Off My Backlog. And the, so that episode is one of the last, I think it's the next to last episode that we actually did of that show. You know, And I'll, I'll save my thoughts on that movie for them. But that's sort of my relationship to Spike up to this point. 
when we were planning out the episodes for the first couple of months of this year, you know, Tessa brought up Spike Lee and basically said that she's got to have it. (laughs) I became culturally aware of Spike Lee when Jungle Fever came out because that is such a moment because Jungle Fever is simultaneously weaponized by white people and it's a Stevie Wonder song. Spike Lee did that, <laughs> put that into the, and so it was, it was controversial. So I knew what I knew about Spike Lee before I ever saw a Spike Lee movie was controversy. That, that, that says zero things about him and all the things about popular culture, film critics, politicians, so on and so forth. Right. It, that's, I think one of the really interesting things about Spike Lee's filmography is what has been said about it often says less about him than the world around him, right? Which is really what Spike Lee is, I think, trying to do, is talk about history, either things that have happened before or things that are happening contemporaneously and and put them in a different perspective. The first Spike Lee movie I saw was either Inside Man or Bamboozled. And I, I Inside, movie, Inside Man is fine. Bamboozled, I watched on my own, and it was one of those movies where... I think a lot of people who are really big into film, who write about film, who study film, there is a film and it's not the one that makes you want to do the thing related to film, but it is the film that makes you go, I think there's a lot more going on here than I realize. Like, I know I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to figure it out. And and for me, Bamboozled was was maybe that movie, but definitely one of those movies. Eventually, I went back to see Do the Right Thing. I've seen Defy Bloods and Black Klansman. I've also seen When the Levee Broke, which is what he did. Uh, well, it was for HBO, I think. But Spike Lee's movies are not the thing I know him best for growing up. <laughs> and we have to talk about that. When I was a, a teenager in middle and high school, I knew Spike Lee for the Air Jordan commercials. He was the guy who said, do you know, do you know, do you know? That was him. When I started watching the Knicks, constantly praying for their time when they would bring down Michael Jordan, which never happened. You know who I shared that desire with? Spike Lee. I know Spike Lee from his work at Madison Square Garden. Now, sometimes it's unclear whether he's willing the Knicks to win or for the refs to lose, but either one's fine. You can see him trying to like manifest it during the game. I love, I I've only seen Spike him Lee. a couple of times at games, but like he is putting some vibes out there. And of course, his greatest his greatest on-screen moment will yes. be at the Academy Awards. It was. Yes. If you remember, it was jumping into Samuel L. Jackson's arms. That is mm-hmm. the best Oscar moment in the entire history. It was a moment of pure of joy. The Oscars. Yes. Really. It was I feel like anybody who ever watches the best actor award from what? 2 years ago should immediately go back and watch Spike Lee winning. Because that will undo that Chadwick Boseman wrong temporarily in your head. It'll give you a good hit of dopamine. You'll be like, <laughs> "Anthony who?" Oh, I'm sorry. We're not talking about the Oscars this week. We will get to that. We will get to Oscars so white. 
I think for two weeks in a row, I think is a as a spoiler alert for a future episode next month, we will be talking about the Woman King. We will be talking about Nope. But it won't be the week we're talking about the Academy Awards. I wonder why. What would Spike <laughs> Lee say? You know, here's the thing about the Knicks real fast. I, I just have to say this in case I, you know, you're always afraid when you cite in academia, when you cite somebody who's like much more important than you, they're always you're always afraid that you'll read what they said and actually clap back at you. So, Spike, if you're listening, I just need you to know, regardless of what else I say today that you might disagree with, and I hope there's nothing. John Starks was the original Steph Curry. You know it. I know it. The world should know it. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, what are we talking about? Uh, well, I mean, kind of to bounce <laughs> off of what you just said, it's also interesting that when I was looking up his filmography, he's done a lot of sports documentary work as well and music videos, too. So right. it's been really interesting kind of like looking over his like some of the other stuff mm-hmm. that he's done between films. I didn't see any Spike Lee until a few years ago with Black Klansman. That was my first Spike Lee film. And that should tell you a lot about how I grew up in a very white conservative family. I did not know who he was for a very long time. And of course, when we were trying to watch our Oscar stuff, Black Klansman was nominated for a few things. So we watched it. I thought it was fine. I thought it was interesting, but it wasn't like my favorite thing in the world. But then... Because I'm such a huge Delroy Lindo fan, which we are going to talk about, when The Five Bloods came out during the first days of the pandemic, I should say, uh, and we watched it, like you, Ryan, I had just this transcendent experience of watching that film, and I loved it so much, which is partially what inspired this episode, this idea of going back and watching the filmography of someone who could make that film, and who, honestly, is such a huge part of the American canon, as it were, that he deserves to be included in an episode like this. Um, I watched Inside Man um, with a few friends a few months ago. I really enjoyed it, even though it is probably one of the most genre things that he's ever done. Um, it's very different from the rest of the films on this list. And then I watched the three films for this episode. So it's definitely one of those experiences where I went from him really being a blind spot for me to someone whose work that I am trying to actively incorporate more into my viewing habits. And there's so much of it. I mean, like I said, there's 25 films that he's directed and he's written a lot of them as well. So I got my work cut out for me. I do want to say before we go any further that we, you know, I joked about it a minute ago. It's not a joke. What is a joke is the Academy. But, you know, there is a very fair and deserve discourse about black filmmakers not getting the recognition that they deserve and have earned. And uh, Spike Lee is the closest thing to an exception that you could say that, that, you know, he broke through in the cultural consciousness has stayed there, has gotten the critical recognition. I think later than most people think he ought to have, Right. I mean, I think that not every Spike Lee movie that Spike Lee has made has been good, but I think you can say the same thing for Spielberg. Uh, Am I saying that Spielberg and Lee are equivocal directors? No, but there's a short list of, I think, the most influential big name, big name directors 
in our lifetime. And Spike Lee's one of them. And the fact that, and this is where the problem comes in, right? You know, Spike Lee is the shining example, but John Singleton's the other one who comes to mind. And I don't know outside of some very specific communities if John Singleton ever gets really put into that conversation. You know, he uh, you know he passed away recently. But, you know, Boys in the Hood, when it came out, was I, in my mind, as a, as a young person, as culturally relevant as what Spike Lee was doing at the time, too. And so I think it just goes to show that, that even in the moments when these directors break through, that, that it's very difficult to stay relevant. Whereas somebody like Spielberg has stayed extremely relevant through some, relatively speaking, fallow times. I think that says a lot. Also, John Singleton is a very interesting person as well. And and uh, his one of his last projects before he died was creating a, a television show, Snowfall, about how crack cocaine became a uh, an epidemic, if you want to call it that, in this country, which is what Clockers is very much about. Yeah, and, and following up on that, I was actually also about to bring up Spielberg uh, in relation to Spike Lee, funnily enough, because I do think that similar to Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese uh, and Brian De Palma, less so Coppola, who I think was more about like old Hollywood could never do stuff like this. But I think especially seeing him with Spielberg, uh, Scorsese and De Palma are people who are in conversation with the medium of film itself at all times and i think given spike lee's background and being a black filmmaker that that adds so much to the movies that he makes and there's so many more references probably than i'll ever pick up on of him sort of using his perspective to both celebrate and repudiate classic film like you can just tell that he's someone who loves the the art form as it exists and is very much trying to have that conversation with it and for me it really popped out in defy bloods which does have a lot of overt references to other movies and aren't done in like a quentin tarantino easter egg kind of style but a i'm going to push back on this i'm going to bring this in i'm going to it's more commentary focus where i feel like you know, the Tarantino approach is just more of like, hey, this is a cool thing that I really liked in this other movie, so I'm going to do it here. <laughs> Funnily enough, that's not the only time Tarantino is going to come up on this episode. But I, I think that's what one of the things that makes uh, Spike Lee such a rewarding filmmaker for me to watch now when I've seen so many other movies that, you know, he's clearly aware of and kind of in conversation with. Uh, two things real fast. Scorsese was co-producer on It Was Clockers. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's there's that there is direct relationship there of some kind. It's very easy to see them that way. And second, you know, in film in well, film's been around a lot less, you know, amount of time than than books. But, you know, literature and all of these things, you one of the things is you can't really point your finger at who's going to have cultural relevance beyond our lifetimes you can't you can't know that until it's actually after our lifetimes for example people thought jk rowling was really going to stand the test of time on the other hand 
as I told Tessa earlier this week, I don't know when people are going to realize that Stephen King is Charles Dickens. I don't really... People venerate Charles Dickens. He is that guy. He does He's hold a very similar who place. Pumped in pop out stuff. Stephen King is the person who's played with serialized stories the most. I mean, like, it's ridiculous how many comparisons you can draw, but people won't know that. Spike Lee is a director who. I, mean, I don't think Spielberg's going to fall away. I don't think Scorsese's going to fall away. It's, it's interesting in the last year of this podcast that we've talked about De Palma so much, I never would have thought of him as somebody in that same category, but that's partially the thing. You don't know, and you can make your best guesses, and I'm probably as like to be wrong about that as not, but I think Spike Lee is one of those directors that people are going to talk about with that reverence that we talk about, you know, like Hawks and, and Capra and, you know, Ford, you know, I, I, he's one of those guys and that's good. It's funny that you're bringing up all of these different directors because I actually made a connection between the first film we're going to talk about, do the right thing. And another really famous director, Alfred Hitchcock. And I'm not, the connection I made was before I read the background for this particular film. Uh, But this film is probably one of his first big breakthroughs. It's about the events of a single day on a block in Bed-Stuy in the 80s. But I read that Lee first got the idea for this film after watching an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, Shopping for Death, where the main characters discuss a theory that hot weather increases violent tendencies, which is a theory that's been around for a long time. You can see it in like 19th century British literature because they were all very concerned about racist ideas about anger and hot weather anyway. um, But he was also inspired, of course, by various police killings that were prominent, infamous around that time. I actually, though, when I was watching this film, felt like it was somewhat inspired by Rear Window as well, because there is a lot of, not in the tension, not in the mood, but there's a lot of like the idea of looking at all of these people on this one block who are all living on top of each other. Like literally they're all watching each other, interacting with each other. Their lives are intertwined in this like way that... They can't, you almost can't take them away from each other without disturbing like this ecosystem that they've built. So I, I want to throw Alfred Hitchcock into this list of, of directors that we've been talking about, because I do, when I was watching this film, I really felt like this was Lee interacting with some of the ideas that Hitchcock has introduced about city life, but he's taking them and talking about them in a different neighborhood in a different context as well. I will say I didn't make that specific connection, but I do think for all three of these movies, which are all set in the same neighborhood at various points in time, what really, to me, drives home as one of the focal points of Spike Lee's work is that sense of community. And I feel like these are all, you know, community movies versus, you know, they don't necessarily have a traditional protagonist following a traditional story arc. It's more about like painting a portrait of the community as itself and how these people fit into the community and how they affect the community around them. And I think Do the Right Thing is probably the clearest example of that by far, just because of the kind of story that it's telling. But it, you know, in watching all of these, it really just sort of brings you in and it it feels like you're getting, you know, especially for me being, you know, a white millennial, like it it is really getting a view into 
of a community from the inside that I otherwise would not be able to experience myself. You start to see it in Clockers, and we definitely saw it in Inside Man. And I, I think as he goes more historical with Black Klansmen and Defy Bloods, you really start to see him embracing different kinds of, not filmmaking, but maybe approaches to storytelling would be the better way to say it. I think there's two conversations. I think there's one of Spike Lee as a storyteller and another of Spike Lee as a director. I really think it's, that's not true with every director, but I think with Spike Lee, there is definitely a differentiation to be had there, which is one of the reasons he's so great. You know, when when Spike Lee goes into genre and historical eras, more so than the 70s with, with Crooklyn, but these three movies that we're talking about today, but especially Do the Right Thing and then Crooklyn, less so with Clockers, is that you could watch the first two-thirds of these movies and say, oh, Spike Lee is a slice-of-life director. He is somebody who's showing you, like you said, Ryan, these these lives that that you don't always see. I mean, unless you're the person who lived those lives. And then it's like, oh, look, it's me. Which he clearly but, has. Yes. Like, that's something I said about mm-hmm. both those films. But, but here's the thing about Spike Lee that I really appreciate. In all three of these movies, there is a very common storytelling thing that happens is that you think this movie is something and he lulls you into thinking that's what it is. And then at the end, guess what? This is what the movie's about. Whether it's about, you know, you you really get lulled into thinking that do the right thing is a slice of life thing. And you do see that tension, but you don't necessarily expect it to boil over in the way that it does. You don't expect what happens to the mom in Crooklyn. You don't, as we were talking about, expect what Isaiah Washington's character in Clockers says at the end. Like he's very good at pulling the rug out from other under you in these stories. And I I think it's great. And and what I like about those, you know, late film developments is that they're not twists. It's like when you when they unfold, you're you real you have the at least for me, I had the realization of like, oh, this is what the movie has actually been about this whole time. And it's so obvious looking back that this is what it was building to and could really only build to this to actually conclude this story that's being told. But there's still not things I ever would guessed would have happened. And I think part of that too, and this is something we talked about with Colby last week. I think when you are interacting with a storyteller who is coming from a different tradition, be it cultural, ethnic, religion, it doesn't matter, right? When you're some when you're coming from when you're interacting with a story that comes from a different place in many senses of the term than where you came from, you see that I mean like you can see the connections, you can see how we got there, but it's not something your your cognitive pathways prepared you to process. But what I wonder, what I what I think is that many people who saw this movie could have told you from the very beginning exactly what was going to happen because that was you know, they came from the same tradition. And and that's why, I mean, of course, you know, that's why censorship is bad people because it's important to interact with these kinds of stories where you don't see it 
And it's important to have examples of stories where you can see it. You have to have both. And everybody needs both. Well, let's go ahead and talk about (laughs) what actually happens in this film. Because, I mean, what we are referring to is this idea that this film does have that, like, slice of life feel to it. We're following various different inhabitants of this block, but specifically Mookie, who works for uh, Pizzeria as a delivery boy. But the idea kind of is, at least the way I read it, is that this is a neighborhood that there's a lot of alliances and there's a lot of like ecosystem, like we have to live together. So this is kind of how we've, we resolve these different tensions that exist because of racism, because of old animosities, because of violence, et cetera. And then of course the climax of the film or the boiling over point, as Sam pointed out, is that Radio Rahim, who is a fixture in the neighborhood is murdered by the cops because there was an incident at the pizzeria where Mookie works. What do we think about the way that this event and what happens afterwards um, is foreshadowed, to use a word we talked about before we started recording, in the rest of the film? To me, and and again, this comes from sort of my own just life experience and watching this movie for the first time in 2020, I feel like I reacted a lot differently to Radio Rahim's murder than I would have if I had watched it, you know, before the events of the last few years and the Black Lives Matter movement really, you know, I will say changed the way that I thought about policing in America and thought about, you know, the way that power structures, you know, are put upon people and intersect with people. And I think the earlier versions of me that would have watched this movie, again, I would have been sympathetic the whole time, I feel like, but it really, I wouldn't have felt that anger as native to myself the way that I do now, thanks to that movement. And I think the, what really starts to lay that foundation is I think all throughout we're being shown different people in the neighborhood, not just the pizza shop, but the, like the bodega uh, is owned by an Asian family and so we're seeing we're seeing different elements interact with in this neighborhood and there's a sense of or a question of who owns the neighborhood whose neighborhood is this who does the neighborhood mm-hmm. belong to and i think one of the great things about this movie is at you know at any point in time that you watch it i feel like you do get the sense that overall you would describe this as a black neighborhood and that puts the police in in the role of the intruder or the interloper uh, and the same thing with the with John Turturro's character running the pizza shop even though that pizza shop has been there as long as many of the other residents of the neighborhood the culture of the neighborhood has shifted and I think that's really what sort of leads up to is it's really rooting you in this perspective of being a black person living in a black neighborhood again living in a white neighborhood or a mixed neighbor, you know, a neighborhood that's more demographically diverse, there are, there's still that sense of, of ownership. And that doesn't always tie to the present state of that neighborhood, but kind of that cultural history of that neighborhood. And, you know, reading up on Bed-Stuy and seeing what's happened to it now, where it's now sort of, it's, you know, roughly 50-50 white and black, thanks to gentrification and, you know, property values and things in that neighborhood today. And I think 
that's all in this movie weirdly and so again as a watching it as a white person in 2020 for the first time it felt prescient but i think if i had been a black person growing up in new york and watching this movie when it was released it would have seemed obvious and it would have been that recognition of oh yes this is a story i understand because this is a story that i live or my friends live or i know people or you know i've experienced aspects of this myself and you know that's one of the great things i love about cinema as an art form but i think Again, it's so hard for me to separate the current political context I'm watching it in from what the original context would have been. And knowing and acknowledging that those are kind of the same thing. It's just that the conversation has changed so much on a national scale. And the people who are calling these things out, you know, I think and I feel it's much more widely accepted and talked about in a much different way now than it was back then. Let me ask you, Ryan, I know that... We are not separated in age by too many years, but how well do you remember the Rodney King incident? I don't really remember it directly mm-hmm. um, as much as I remember, like the first time I really started to think about and understand race in present day America, because like growing up, like all of our Black History Month stuff was like, right. you know, oh, we're going to learn about these, you know. Black people who are no longer alive. Yeah, Yeah. right. You know, Um, I mean, Rosa Parks was alive, but things that happened. It was always, it was always couched in the past of things that had happened before. You know, and for me, it wasn't until OJ that I really had any sense of like, oh, racism is still a thing in this country. You know, and that's that's when I was maybe like ten or eleven. Which is really interesting because, of course, O.J. Simpson is very... The discussion about O.J. Simpson and his connection to racial issues is very fractious. We could spend many hours. (laughs) (laughs) But suffice for this conversation to say, that is when I began to recognize that, like, oh, this is still an issue that is happening today and not a thing that, like, okay, we had the civil rights movement and we fixed it and things are fine now. And... So I don't, I, I didn't have, I don't remember the the Rodney King riots happening, but I feel like I heard them referenced a lot afterwards. Yeah, I, you know, when you said that about seeing it through the lens of summer of 2020, really, I, I wondered about that because for me, that's my reference point is, is thinking about, so the first time I saw Do the Right Thing, I know this was very... The end of the film was very striking and, you know, it's it's related to that touchstone of of Rodney King. And of course, Do the Right Thing came out before Rodney King, which is very interesting because being from the other side of the country, it wasn't until recently that I really understood that when the riots happened after the officers were acquitted, Koreatown is what saw the most, some of the heaviest damage and which is interesting in comparison to the Korean family who owns the store at the end going, nope, nope, we're not, we're not them. We're not them. You know, I mean, the, the but that's dad what, says I, we're black, well, which that's is interesting. What, but that's mm-hmm. what happened in LA to, to varying effect. But I also said to you, Tessa, when we were watching the film, that people who say, well, they should be mad, but they shouldn't riot and destroy property. They have not seen this movie. Or if they have seen it, they didn't understand 
what, what Mookie was doing. He destroyed the shop so they didn't get murdered. Instead, you know, like he directed the mob's anger against the store, which can be fixed. It can be sold. It can be replaced because he knew in that moment that that family was going to die if that anger wasn't redirected because the cops were gone. But yeah, it's it's just really interesting thinking about because again, it came out. Do the right thing came out before both well, Rodney King. And so uh, this this is a lot like last week when Colby was talking about 9-11. And the fact of the matter is, is that we are living in a a world that has been dramatically affected by not necessarily September 11th, but the reaction to it, the political reaction to it or overreaction, if you want to call it that, or reaction to the wrong thing. It wasn't an overreaction. It was just a reaction to the wrong thing, the wrong place, right? And we're still dealing with that. We're living with that. And we've lived with it for so long. There are people on this planet who are adults who don't remember it. And so that won't be a touchstone for them. So, you know, in, in some of the ways that people talk about Islamophobia, the, the forever wars, which forever war doesn't refer to Vietnam anymore. There are people who don't understand why. That's just the way it is. And, and that's what 2020 was, if there was anything positive to come out of it, was that, that this kind of thing is much more on, on uh, a lot more people's radars than it was before. You know, it's it's interesting, and I wonder if Do the Right Thing can really do what we're talking about for a white audience that didn't come to consciousness during the time of, say, like a Rodney King or the Black Lives Matter, you know, summer of 2020. Like, can it do that by itself to an audience who is not, who is not black? And does Spike Lee care? Is that what this is about? <laughs> What got me about this is that this, besides the fact that it's very, it is very much a movie set in a specific place in a specific time, but the actual structure and the actual thing that the movie is about, you could remake this movie now and it would be just as relevant to the situation that we're dealing with here in 2023. So for me, it almost feels like I mean, I don't know. Watching this movie was almost also depressing because it was like we're still de- we're still dealing with this shit. And I think that some of Spike Lee's more recent movies are about still dealing with this shit. And so, like, you know, it is it is very interesting to kind of like look back at it and realize that not a lot has changed. The other thing that really interested me in this movie was the fact that. There, you're right that it is a more diverse neighborhood, even though it's a black neighborhood, because you have the Italians who own this pizzeria shop, although they don't live there, which I think is a very interesting distinction. The, we have the the Asian family who owns the bodega. We also have a big Latinx uh, population because there's constantly sort of this friction. It's a friendlier friction, perhaps, than uh, with the other groups. But like Mookie's baby mama, who's played by Rosie Perez, is is Latinx and she speaks Spanish and. All and she's wonderful. And she's wonderful. <laughs> We're big Rosie Perez fans. I am very interested in the relationship between this black community and the Italian family that owns this shop. So Sal and his two sons, Vito and Pino, mainly because we've been talking about this tension in our mob episodes, only we were looking at it from the Italian perspective. 
I mean, because you get like people saying, I was raised on Sal's pizza. Like, are you ready to be rocked by irony? Yes. Before answering this question? Yes. Giancarlo Esposito's dad is Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, I have to say, Giancarlo Esposito is so fucking young in this that I did not recognize him at first. He is like a little baby. I just think it's funny that, I mean, most of us know Giancarlo Esposito at this point for playing playing Gustavo Fring in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. So it's it's a real shock to see him go from playing essentially a Latino role to a black role. He was born in Denmark. His dad is Italian and his mom's from Alabama. This is just like I love that he is playing. I mean, like you would never know any of that from the way that he inhabits this this character who's very much the agitator, mm-hmm. right? It, to call him the antagonist is wrong. I think that's, it's a stretch to really call Danny Aiello's character the antagonist, which is one of the big problems in this film is like, who's the antagonist? Well, it's the cops. But the point is, there's that tension there. And and I think that's probably a really good way to talk about uh, the Italian family is to say that they are antagonistic but they are not the antagonists. I mean, the older son is overtly racist. Let me not. Let's not. I mean, the dad is slightly less overtly racist. The youngest kid, it's like, maybe there's some hope for you. I don't know. But but that's the thing. They are antagonistic toward the community in some ways that are accidental. Sal. Sal. Yeah. I keep wanting to call him Danny Aiello. Uh, but Sal is, I think Sal is perhaps a little bit more aware of who he is and what he says than than he would give himself credit for. He would probably say, well, I didn't mean to. I mean, I know he would say that. I'm pretty sure he does. I think the older son knows and doesn't care. I mean, that's part of what race is, part of what it is, not all of it. But my friends make fun of me. Yeah, but they're but they're not they're not the antagonist of the film. Again, those are the cops. So, but they antagonize the community. But it's interesting that Buggin' Out is the only one at the beginning of the film that has this like overt friction because he's like, why aren't there any black people on the wall? You're in a black neighborhood. But, but when he tries to bring it up to anybody else at the beginning, they're all like, what are you talking about? Like, this is this is Sal's. This is like the pizzeria that we get food from all the time. The, the problem with what he does is, is it performative? Is it? it yes. Or is it, it? No, it's real. Indicative of a real tension that exists. Oh, of course it is. That's not the that's not the issue. It's it's performative though. Like he he is performing a role of black activist, and and we're supposed to see a comparison between him and Radio Rahim, who is living what he truly believes and he's living it through the medium that he most identifies with which is public enemy you know that's the reason he dies and not bugging out because bugging out is performing and knows when to get out of the way whereas radio rahim is committed because it's what he really feels deep down the other character that we really see that from is smiley right the third member of the protest at the end if you recall yep you know and he could have very easily been the one to be killed. In some ways, it's surprising that he wasn't. 
But I think it's interesting to think about those three characters who become, you know, the the antagonists, the the ones, the antagonists who are not really the antagonist either, who really spark what happens at the end. Smiley and Radio Rahim are really living what they believe authentically. I don't think, I really don't think that that's what what Bugging Out's doing. It doesn't mean he doesn't believe it. It doesn't mean he doesn't think it's real. I, I, I'm not saying that. And just, you know, does that make any sense? Is, that any, is any of this getting through to you? <laughs> you know, I, I think Bugging Out is also a foil for the Sal's racist son in that same way, where is Sal bigoted? Probably, you know, but he knows how to he knows how to exist in this neighborhood without actively pressing people's buttons most of the time. And, you know, the older son exists to press people's buttons. And I feel like a lot of that is, again, performative and posturing of, you know, how can I clearly, you know, in this neighborhood, I'm not the one with actual power. How can I assert myself in the most aggressive way possible so that I feel like I have a foothold up on the pe- on the people in the neighborhood who are going to antagonize me because of who I am. And so I think that's how you get that sort of the the aggressiveness of the way that he he expresses those feelings that that you know again are somewhat based in in legitimate psychological feelings uh you know in terms of his place in the neighborhood but you know, the way that those are expressed and the way that the particular words that he uses, the behavior that he conducts himself with, you know, is, again, just as much loud posturing, because I do think, you know, push comes to shove, he's going to back down mm-hmm. at the at the end of the day, you know, he's going to he's going to act in a self preservation kind of mode, should any confrontation actually turn violent. Right. And it wasn't until Radio Rahim was like, let's go. I mean, he was trying to do this for the entire movie and failing. Mm-hmm. The other thing, too, by the way, about Sal is about that coexistence that you brought up. You know, we talk about what the different character, what the different characters, what their roles are in the film. That, which is something Spike Lee is very good at, being able to define. You know, he's doing that very traditional literary, you know, characterization, and 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 that is sometimes overlooked. In, in the stuff that he does as well. Mookie is our POV. He is our entryway into this world. We are supposed to identify with him and his feelings, which can be problematic when he's interacting with his, the mother of his child, Tina. whatever their relationship is. His Tina. His Tina. Uh, and, but, <laughs> but Mookie tells us very, very clearly, and Spike Lee tells us through Mookie. Well, Spike Lee is Mookie. The point is, he he tells us very clearly that Sal's greatest sin above any other is his fetishization of black women. Mookie will tolerate a lot from Sal. He will put up with his bullshit, and at the end of the movie, he still lets Sal know that he doesn't think Sal is a terrible person, that he doesn't want to take advantage of Sal. He doesn't want his money that he didn't earn He doesn't want Sal to necessarily leave the neighborhood. He doesn't want Sal to die. He doesn't want him to be unsafe. But you better fucking stay away from from not just, you know, not just. I don't think he's just talking about somebody who he's close to. I think he's making a larger point there. But like, this is where the line is drawn. You can be a part of the community. You can be a part of it in this way. But you can't 
do and say and believe what you are and fetishize black women. You have to not do that. Well, and I think both Sal and his son, although his son is more aggressive about it, like they are bigoted in the sense that they do believe that the black people in the neighborhood at any time could cause trouble. The idea that like, because that's why Sal has the baseball bat and that's why he, you know, he's always like kicking people out of the shop, you know, if they start to act, act up at all. Boy, I think if we learned anything in January, we could learn that their people are up in violence just about as much anyway. Right. But the point is, I think that he doesn't know because there's a lot about that situation that just sort of escalates out of control in terms of people's feelings. But he doesn't realize that. Like, the cops will take those feelings all the way. Like, and that's, like, part of his privilege as somebody who hasn't doesn't really have to deal with that. Oh, and then, of course, his son takes the destruction of the shop as just proof that these people, these black people are just, you know, violent. Which, to me, feels a lot like Mad Woman, right? Like, you're, you poke the bear till the claws come out, right? And then you're just like, oh, well, that proves that she's crazy. I did want to ask about Public Enemy, which is obviously a huge deal in this film spike lee is great at soundtracking yeah i mean this is not music that i grew up with necessarily um you know i don't think my fairly conservative parents would have let me really like get into rap music as (laughs) as a kid (laughs) because it it was just so far into them and you know the the cultural conversation and perception around rap at the time i was growing up was probably even more poignant than it was back when this movie came out but the i really love the way that music ties this whole movie together um you know especially with it really ending with the dj playing a tribute song for radio rahim and you know if this neighborhood has that heartbeat it you know it is that soundtrack and it is the way that music is used to express all the characters feelings and you know i think to sam's point Radio Rahim's love of public enemy says so much about who Radio Rahim is that the two are you can't you can't separate one from the other in this case and and Spike Lee is very good at using music to tell us who these people are and you know I think one of his greatest gifts in this is I feel like the characters are relatively simple and fairly uncomplicated in and of themselves. And that's not a criticism. I think that's actually a strength because there are so many characters that it it really is helpful when watching the movie to kind of know, you know, in a very succinct way what each of them are about. All of the relationships between those relatively simple characters are extremely layered and complicated. And that's where all of the complication and where the structural issue becomes a personal issue all sort of dovetails together, you know, and I think Spike Lee, at least for a time around when this was coming out, had a reputation of being sort of, and I'm using this in quotes, the angry black filmmaker. And I think, I think he took that on. I I think he used that to his advantage, actually. And I think putting Public Enemy front and center, who had a similar reputation for their music, you know, and again, looking back from my vantage point, I say, well, those guys are pointing out the obvious. Like, yeah, they're angry about it because they should be angry about it. But, you know, that message wasn't as easily communicated or as often communicated, you know, when this originally was made versus, again, looking back on it now. 
I did not really listen to most hip hop. There are very clear exceptions, but just because it wasn't, it wasn't my thing, and that's okay. But part of being around at that time and and trying to soak in popular culture is to be aware of it. So I, I'm very aware of a lot of things. And so when I watched Spike Lee, I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, I remember that. I remember that. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that's what that was. One of the things, by the way, about Spike Lee, to go back to, to John Singleton for a minute, is I remember having a distinct impression that Spike Lee is like the in-your-face, like you said, angry black man director and John Singleton's just a little far back removed, kind of kind of a bigger, more looming presence. Like he was the more quote unquote serious director, which of course, why is there that that dichotomy shouldn't exist in the first place? But yeah, that was very much the image is that Spike Lee was a little less serious in that way, which is absurd. One of the things that's that's interesting about Fight the Power is so that do the right thing as far as soundtrack. There are other songs, obviously. We have a whole Samuel L. Jackson character devoted to. Mr. Senior Love Daddy. But but Fight the Power is a singular soundtrack song. There are other songs, but this is the one that matters, right? We get the, the, you know, Spike Lee in all three movies gives us an entire song over the opening credits. It's Fight the Power in this one. It gets played over and over and over again because that's what, that's the only song Radio Raheem likes. He'll play other songs if he likes them. Like, we get it over and over and over again. Crooklyn, which we'll go to next, is a soundtrack that is deep. Spike Lee gives you so many songs. The same way that Samuel L. Jackson's character does in Do the Right Thing, but those are really secondary, whereas in Crooklyn, the, the, the different songs on the soundtrack are meaningful. And then... In Clockers, do you notice how many Seal songs were on that were in the movie, Ryan? Because I was like, one, two, three. Like it kept going. And then I was like, oh, that's Desiree. You know, it was like, it was very much a very, the way that he uses, so he uses Fight the Power to send a message and do the right thing. A very lyrical message. I mean, that's what it is. It's in your face. There it is. This is exactly what it means. And then in Crooklyn, it's, it's lots of different music used to create a vibe that goes with the grain, that goes with the story. And then in Clockers, Seal and Desiree are used to go against the grain. Because Clockers is all about, this is what you think this community is. You expect to hear a certain kind of music, but I'm going to give you Seal and Desiree instead. To tell you, this is more Shakespearean, which is ironic because Desiree does the love theme from Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, I believe the next year. But that's the thing. The way that he uses music in all three of these is very, very different. Now, before we move away from Radio Raheem and fight the power. You were, you were very triggered by a I moment was, in this. I was, I was not triggered. But <laughs> when, the, when, the, when, the, when the, the boom box died, I was like, oh, that's going to take so many batteries. And he goes into this 20 D-cell battery. They're like, 20? He's like, yeah, 20. I mean, look at that thing. And you know, by the way, 20 D-cell batteries power that for about two hours. I need you to know. Like that man goes. And so as I was scrolling through Twitter this morning, I saw an ad on Amazon for Amazon for a storage case for batteries. So because, you know, some people need so many batteries, they need a case for it. And the case is called Battery Daddy. 
And I really think that that's Radio. That should have been Radio Raheem's nickname. Radio Raheem is Battery Daddy. Two more things. One, Bill Nunn, who plays Radio Raheem, is an excellent character actor who has so much work in this. He's in all three uh, Raimi Spider-Man movies playing the same role. Robbie Robertson, I believe is his name. He mm-hmm. is also the physical therapist in Regarding Henry. Oh. Yeah, that's Radio Raheem. I know. That. Yeah. This man contains multitudes. What a good actor. Also, Sal says there is no music in his pizzeria. I'm sorry. Have you ever been in an Italian pizza place that has no music? That doesn't exist. That is the one fatal flaw of do the right thing. No music in the Italian pizzeria. That is against the law. What law? God's law. (laughs) And by God's law, I mean Frank Sinatra. What the hell, man? I have to say, before we move on to the next segment... The battery thing, the battery thing, but then there are also th- other things in this movie. We talk a lot about Spike Lee and his anger and his social commentary and the emotion in his films. He is a fucking funny filmmaker. He knows how to make you laugh in these films. Like there are so many moments in this film where I was just like howling with laughter because it was so funny. Especially when Mookie is talking to Pino and trying to get him to admit that Prince is actually his favorite musician is just like one of the best. Well, he's like listing all these Italian musicians. He's like, no, that's not your favorite. It was great. Before we move on to Crooklyn, though, I have to take a brief pause to have what I've entitled an unofficial Delroy Lindo appreciation segment. Delroy Lindo was in Crooklyn and Clockers, and Spike Lee wanted him to be and do the right thing. He turned it down because he didn't think he could be authentic in the role. He is Woody, the father in Crooklyn, and he's Rodney, uh, the drug the drug lord in Clockers. I have been a diehard Delroy Lindo fan since The Good Fight. I am more familiar with Delroy Lindo than I am with Spike Lee. I think he deserves every award, and I am still very angry that he was not nominated for his performance in The Five Bloods. How? What is your relationship with Delroy Lindo, and how do you feel about his work in these films? I certainly agree that he should have been uh, nominated for the five bloods and probably one for the five bloods i don't remember exactly who else was nominated that year but you know i'm not i don't always have an eye for actors when i'm watching stuff i think for as many movies as i've seen i still struggle with like i'll i will be watching you know a two-hour movie you know and i will get to like 45 minutes in i'll be like oh that guy was also in that other movie about like fairly well-known people. So, you know, but looking through his filmography, I think the thing that really jumps out, and I think we see this also with Giancarlo Esposito, who's in Do the Right Thing. I think this also applies to Pedro Pascal, who you guys talked about last week, is that there's a lot of actors of color who don't really pop out in the pop culture the way that we think of until they're in a thing that is directed at white audiences. Giancarlo Esposito has had a very long career, including Do the Right Thing, before Breaking Bad. And then Breaking Bad comes out and he's now, you know, as, as close as uh, as close to a star as we have <laughs> today, you know, and when we're, everything is very much more IP driven than star driven. But, you know, same thing with Pedro Pascal and being in 
the Mandalorian and the last of us, you know, it's, it, and they have long careers like Pedro Pascal was in an episode of Buffy way back in the day. You know, it's not like these people and, you know, I would point to Del, Delroy Lindo being on, you know, the, the good fight as an example of this too. And that, you know, these are people who have been around and have been, you know, in supporting roles for long careers before they, again, before they sort of pop, you know, where they become known as their own name and not just because they were that guy in that movie. And I just think it's a really interesting pattern. Again, it's it's a systemic issue. I don't think there's you know specific people trying to keep them in these sort of background roles. But you know, when people on Twitter are constantly seemingly discover that like, oh, Pedro Pascal was in like an episode of NYPD Blue, you know, twenty years ago. It's like these people have been around the whole time. It's not like they weren't working or it's not like they weren't It's like people asking Michelle Yeoh what it's like to break out. Like, what are you talking about? Like you know, for me, Michelle Yeoh broke out in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is, you know, 23 years ago, at least, you know, and she was around before that, for sure. I mean, I really, she probably broke out for me and Tomorrow Never Dies, but that's, you know, but even then she's, she's in a Bond movie, which is like, you know, if you're a girl in a Bond movie, you are either a name before you're in the movie or you rarely become a name after the movie. But she was a big deal in Hong Kong cinema, like... You know, she was, Absolutely. you know, she was, uh, you know, she was a Kung Fu star. So it's just, it's fascinating to me. You're absolutely right. Our former co-host, Andy, loves Boston Legal, as do I. But the thing to know about Delroy Lindo is that he does a better job of what William Shatner does in Boston Legal than William Shatner did. Like the whole, like when you do a spinoff, right? There has to be a reason to come to that show's spinoff. Because, like, otherwise, why don't you just do more of the original show? Frasier works because of Niles. And his dad, too, right? But, like, you have to mm-hmm. bring something to the spinoff. And so the Kings brought Delroy Lindo. Much like David E. Kelly brought William Shatner. Delroy Lindo's better. Like, he he's more magnetic. He's more... He's He's... As as larger than life as we say that William Shatner is, Delroy Lindo's larger. <laughs> which, Absolutely. by the way, yeah. which by the way and has more life. Yeah. <laughs> which, by the way, means Diane Lo- Diane Lockhart is the Alan Shore equivalent, and and it takes her a while before she becomes fully unhinged in later seasons of The Good Fight. But it does work. This comparison works. <laughs> I. <laughs> Love Delroy Lindo, like I said. And I think, too, we have we started to kind of talk about this with Do the Right Thing. And I don't think it becomes a thing. It becomes more prominent in Spike Lee's career later after these films. But he does take this turn into a very, I'm not going to say literary. It's honestly more theatrical type of storytelling in terms of, you know, he becomes a lot more Shakespearean. He becomes, I mean, Chirac is like based on, a you know, an ancient play. It's an adaptation of an ancient play, and you know the you know he he writes monologues now, and just seeing Delroy Lindo, he, Delroy Lindo has a monologue in Clockers, like that's very similar to some of the ones that he does in *The Five Bloods*, and he just nails monologues, like he makes you like absolutely cannot look away from him. You're just like taking in every word that he says, and it just, I just feel like he and Spike Lee do good work together. And the fact that he's in so many Spike Lee movies is making me like want to watch more. But let's talk about Crooklyn. 
which is a 1994 film. It's a coming-of-age drama about a young Black girl in Brooklyn in the 70s. Um, It's written by Spike Lee, his sister Joey Susanna Lee, and brother Sonique Lee, based on experiences that they had growing up, so they wrote the script together. It's sort of more based around Troy, who is the Joey Susanna Lee character. It's based more on her experience growing up in this particular neighborhood and growing up in this family. I think it's interesting, and we should talk about this more when we get to Clockers, that without meaning to, all of these films kind of do form like a, at least chronological trilogy of like, we started in the 80s, and then we went back to the 70s, and then we're going to skip ahead to the 90s. What do we think about Crooklyn and sort of its relationship to do the right thing in terms of being in the same place, but at a different time? Yeah, I I will say it took a little bit for me to actually realize that this was a period movie and wasn't just set in the 90s, which I think really just underlines that we're as far from the 90s as the 90s were from the 60s at this point. The cars were the only giveaway in that opening Rock scene. Rock and like, robots. It could, have been, it could have been everything except for the cars made sense. What really got me was in the scene that RuPaul shows up and dances, uh, the cereal boxes... I was like, that doesn't look like 90s kicks. I know what 90s kicks <laughs> looks like because I ate kicks in the 90s. And so I was like, this is, I was like, oh, this must be before the like the 90s as a design. I thought it was in the over. 80s in a while. It did take me a while. Yeah. And I, it's just an interesting, but you know, the car, because I was like, oh, the car's like in this neighborhood. Maybe they are kind of driving older, older car. Like I could kind of see that. And, you know, I think cars look. 90s cars look less different from 70s cars than cars now look from 90s cars, uh, at least to my eyes and based on my life experience. There's a lot there's a lot less squareness in cars today than there were, you know, 30 plus years ago. I, I knew it wasn't the 80s when I was like, OK, that's true. Everything you just said was true, but there has to be at least one hatchback driving around. Somebody's got to have a hatchback. It is the if it's the 80s, somebody's but nobody did. That's how I figured it out. And uh, no Walkmans, because you know if this was set, especially in the 90s, there would have been at least one character with a, carrying a Walkman the entire movie. When I suggested, because I know Do the Right Thing was, was Tessa's pick for this episode, and when I suggested Crooklyn and Clockers, I did not realize that they all took place in Bedsai in different time periods. Uh, and so I do think this... We didn't even know yeah. we were doing a thing. <laughs> we're just that good. <laughs> And I think this really does work as a trilogy. And what I like about Crooklyn is that it doesn't really, it's not focused on the systemic issues that the other two are focused on. I think in part because it is told from a child's perspective and children, you know, even if they intuitively understand some of these things, they're not overly concerned with them the way that adults have to be. And so I think getting this sort of nostalgic view of this neighborhood, I think, I honestly think that if I had watched Crooklyn and then watched Do the Right Thing back to back in that order, the end of Do the Right Thing would be that much more emotionally draining and, and devastating because I think there's such an affection and such a love for this neighborhood and the, and the lifestyle. You know, it opens with this great montage of them playing these like, I mean, 
they're playground games, but they're not, they're on the street. So, I, you know, but there's such a love and affection for growing up in an urban environment that like, you know, having a, like a sub, more of a suburban style upbringing. Like we, we lived in a row home, but it was in like a, like a private development. Like we weren't on like a main street, you know, we weren't close enough to walk to convenience stores and bodegas and things, but weirdly reminded me of watching Sesame Street as a kid and like that being my impression of what urban living was where there's just people all around and you know everybody even though you're living in this city with thousands and thousands if not millions of people you know the people in your neighborhood you know and even more than a lot of other things like that's that's really what this brought to mind for me is the love for the urban setting the love for that kind of childhood, you know, even though Spike spent his very early years in Atlanta, which is you know a little bit different from New York in the way that it it's set up, but you could really tell that there was just a love for this neighborhood, a love for that lifestyle, and all the not that details, there hardships too. Or, like yes, so many details. You also brought up uh, before we started recording. A very particular comparison between this movie and another movie that might win some Oscars in a month. Yeah, I was I was just about to get there, Sam. <laughs> um, that well, watching this now, it I really was like, oh, this is Spike Lee's Fablements, and I think this actually stands alongside Fablements. It, you know, it's not about movie making; it's not as directly about. You know, the, the main character, I don't think Troy is meant to stand in for Spike Lee in a literal sense, the way that Sammy Fableman stands in for Steven Spielberg. There is that same sense of nostalgia and that, you know, the this is this is what made me who I am today kind of feeling and the use of cinema as a medium to tell that story. And I'm especially thinking about when the scenes that take place down south that are filmed in a very warped lens way which was deeply confusing and unsettling and apparently when this movie was first out they actually posted signs at the theater telling people that it was this was on purpose and not we actually uh, paused because we were like is there something wrong like with with our streaming service to be fair it was peacock (laughs) my wife walked through and she's like you couldn't find a better copy of this movie And, I, and I, I, I had also paused to look it up, and I was like, no, no, this is, this is on purpose. But I, I think it really shows that when you have a director working on the level that a Spike Lee or a Spielberg is working at, they use all the tools at, at their disposal. And it's all very considered and purposeful. And, you know, this really, I really do think this stands alongside, you know, the Fablemans and and lesser lesser entries in this sort of micro genre like the Kenneth Branagh one from last year that I can't remember the title of off the top of my head and um Belfast it was another uh Belfast. place name yeah <laughs> yes yeah Belfast um and I think it I think it's just I just think it's a really interesting comparison because I do think that this and Fablements have a very similar nostalgic tone but they also consider the adults from the point of view of an adult later on. And I think that makes the, even though this is told from my child's perspective, I do think the adults in this are very relatable because 
it's like right i don't know somehow he's blending the two depictions like we definitely see the parents from the kid's perspective in the way that they're acting especially in the scene where you know she sort of helps her dad and mom make up after they have a big fight but it does have that sort of knowing understanding of like speaking as an adult we understand what the adults are going through in a way that the kids do not and i think that sort of subjective layering is is just super interesting and makes this a really rich and engaging movie even though i also was like 20 minutes in before i realized oh I'm not waiting for the plot to kick in. This is a hangout movie. I think that part of what you're describing has to do a lot with the performance of Delroy Lindo as Woody and Alfred Woodard as Carolyn. Because I think that both of these actors do a really great job of communicating what they're feeling and what they're going through physically. So like we're picking up on it even if a child might not pick up on that so like for example when Woody comes in to tell his children uh, which by the way six kids that's so many kids he comes in to tell his children that uh, Carolyn has cancer and you can just see like the tears in his eyes you can see like the very defeated look that he has before he you know like how do I how do I even communicate this you know this news to my children but like the kids don't know what that means, right? Um, they they don't understand what happened just before this off camera, right? Um, but just even his affect and the way that he's sort of con- using his body to communicate all these things, we know exactly what happened right before that scene, right? And so it's it is a very it is a very well done use of these two actors to like communicate the things that. Troy doesn't get to see, but we get to kind of understand through these actors. So Ryan, do you remember when it was that first real big commercial wave of widescreen TVs? It had the aspect ratio button where you could like zoom or compress or, you know, it had like three or four different options. Do you remember that? I don't because we only had like, it took us a while to get a, a widescreen TV. So it it's funny because I I had been gifted with a TV, but I couldn't afford digital cable. And this is before the switchover. So the way that I watched Lost in HD was I found the channel, you know, the like five digit digital over the air channel with the hyphen in it. I found that for ABC and managed to do a manual record on my DVR that I had to have as part of the apartment we lived in. It was a really weird mixture of things. And so the only way the aspect ratio would work is like if you turned on the recording, it would be like super tall. And it's what I describe as the 1980s HBO effect where their airing of Star Wars had scenes like the Ben Kenobi scene on Hoth where they couldn't frame it correctly on an old 4.3 TV in the 80s. So it looks super tall, right? Because they squished it from left to right. And the way you can fix that on an early widescreen TV is push the aspect ratio button until it just smooshes. And so that's how I know that what he's doing is he is using, I think it's the same aspect ratio, I, I think. That's what it looks like. It looks to me like it's the same aspect ratio. And then the 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 image is pulled from the top and bottom to fill the entire uh, 16.9 frame. 
I think he's using a like a super wide, like a cinemascope style mm-hmm. lens in an anamorphic aspect ratio. That I think it's what I think he's actually doing. I think it's all in camera. You know, oh, I see. There isn't a way to digitally distort that right. quite yet. I think it's all done in camera where he's using an, an ultra wide lens, but the wrong, the wrong quote unquote aspect ratio to get that effect. Yeah. And I just, what struck me is really funny about it before I realized he was doing it on purpose. I was like, if I had my old TV, I could just push this button. It would look fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, it's just, I, that broke me. I, and then I was like, this is great. Because this is the idea of this is what it's like when you're a kid and there's just too much information. Like there's too much. This is what it's 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 what it's like to be. It's it's a visual representation of being overwhelmed. I was actually surprised by how long it goes on for because I was expecting it to be like a five minute thing and then sort of back to 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 normal but it it definitely for me also captured that very specific feeling of being a kid and being at someone else's house and like you know especially if they're a relative or a friend's family like even just like i remember the first time like i went over for dinner at a friend's house and it was just me and my friend and their family and i was like this is not the way that we do dinner like you know in our house like the tv was on constantly you know, the like the the combinations of foods were was just different, you know, and like not that it was bad, but it was like I hadn't even thought that my family had things that were unique about it because we all have these sort of just like idiosyncrasies of the way that we do things. Like, you know, one of the things that my wife and I talk about is like the way that we travel and the way that we do vacations is very specific to us and the kinds of things that we do. And, you know, we all have these little routines and things. And when you're a kid and you're not in that environment, like I just remember that feeling of, I don't know how to be. Like, I don't know where I'm supposed to sit. I don't know, like, you know, you go into a a bathroom that you're not familiar with and they have like regular soaps and liquid soap and then like, (laughs) Soaps that look like little seashells and stuff. Yes. And I'm like, I don't know what soap I'm supposed to use, <laughs> you know? And it really, that overwhelming, just being completely out of your environment, but feeling like too awkward to like ask somebody because you're like, this should be an obvious thing. I shouldn't need to ask anybody how to do stuff I do every day, but I'm in an environment that is wholly unfamiliar to me. And I, I, I just, my brain is trying to process this and I'm also trying to just like use the bathroom. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. My, my friend, Sean. They had a tree swing, a basketball hoop, a dog, a sectional couch. Like, what are these? These are things that people have, and we don't. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's also that sense, too, about, like, we're talking about a very specific neighborhood in New York versus the South, which Mm -hmm. is its own, like, culture, its own construction of blackness, right? I thought it was very interesting when after that section, when she's picked up by her uncle and her aunt, I think, I think they're married. Mm -hmm. I can't really tell what the relationship is between them, where her aunt basically says, you couldn't pay me. Like you could not pay me to go there. And I thought that was just so interesting. It's not just Southern. It's also like they're the, the stepmom. It's all an affect. Yeah. Like none of it's like, this is, one of the things we're supposed to see as somebody who's from the South is that this is the South, but it's not 
No, it's not. It's and so you know, Troy is is see this is what she thinks the South is. I assure you, it's not. Well, yeah, it's, obviously. But that's the thing; she doesn't know that. She can't parse. You know, she she knows that there's something wrong in that adult relationship, something that's not working. But she's not old enough or knowledgeable about the South to know that this dude chose poorly in his remarriage. That he married, you know, this this combination of creepy doll collector, Southern Gothic, and <laughs> televangelist following. That's like two very specific Southern tropes that when they go together, wow. Well, and I, I think it's worth pointing out too that Aunt Maxine is Joey Susanna Lee, yes. um, who is the the person that Troy is actually based on. And so and she's been in other Spike Lee films. She's actually in Clockers as well. So it's interesting, like seeing the interactions between like the character she's playing and then the the person that, you know, that she's that she's based on. But it is interesting too that she it also is a different um expression of black feminists, right? Because like yeah. her mom is the one who puts like the beads in her hair and she wears beads right. in her hair, but then Aunt Maxine is like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm gonna straighten your hair. Well and well that's the other thing that I wanted to mention about the movie is that it, first of all, what you brought up is the competing ideas of what black culture is and of course if you pay attention long enough you realize that's an incredibly dumb thing to say oh yeah like black why is would black aim. exactly yeah. uh but but there is an interesting juxtaposition of black and white culture yes you know we see it in the south with the barbies but before that my favorite in the my favorite just my favorite thing in this entire movie and really how i knew it was the 70s more than anything else they knew the words to the Partridge Family song. Okay, that's how you know it's the 70s. This is not a rerun, my friend. This is happening contemporaneously. So these kids, we see at the end of the movie, toward the end of the movie, they love watching Soul Train, which seems very like, well, that makes sense. But they also love the Partridge Family. They watch that show enough times to know the song, which, I mean, oh, Susan Day. Oh, man. She's so pretty. Anyway, but... But the point is, there's that the Partridge family does play a very important role in this film because of the juxtaposition between them and the rest of the soundtrack. Like, you know what the Partridge family isn't? Sly and the Family Stone. You know what the Partridge family isn't? Curtis Mayfield, Jimi Hendrix, the Chilites. You know, it's like... They're not getting played on solid gold. No, but, you know, we get this enmeshment. You know, this is a black family who's enmeshed in black popular culture, which, I mean, maps, it makes sense. But there's this little small reminder, and it happens with the Barbie dolls in the South, right? There's this little small reminder that that the white culture that Partridge Family is part of is so dominant that that you can, you can be a black family in a, if not majority black neighborhood, then very close to it, but you cannot get away from white culture. It's there, my friend. You cannot tune it out. And and they don't want to because they like the Partridge family. Well, and we get this with Woody too, right? Because he his whole thing about being a musician is that he yeah. wants to play his music, right? right? But his music isn't particularly popular, right. which means that Carolyn has to support them. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the the other the other cultural thing that really comes out in this movie is the Knicks. 
Man, I knew I which would one be, was Spike Lee yeah, as listen, soon as he, that kid was like, listen, want to watch the Knicks game. Knowing what's going to happen in the future, I'd be super pissed if I missed the Knicks win too, because that's the only time in my goddamn life I'm going to see it. <laughs> and he missed it. He doesn't know how mad he should be. Spike Lee retroactively knows. That's why he writes it that way. But I just thought that was hilarious. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, kid. Man, that's like that's like not going to the Cubs game back in the 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 early 1900s. Like shit, you're never gonna see it again, friend, unless you live for a really long time. Yeah, it's it. Growing up, I was always upset that I was born six years <laughs> after the only <laughs> Phillies World Series win, and so I'm glad that I've gotten that in my lifetime. But you know, two two things I wanted to kind of react to with what you were saying, Sam. And and one, you know, the last time I was on the show, we talked about a lot about magical realism. And I do think that there is an element of the surreal feeling in magical realism, especially in this movie, that is that sort of trying to capture that feeling of, you know, there is black culture, but you're living sort of in an island of white culture and seeing that sort of penetrate and permeate through this, you know, through Troy's reality is was very interesting and it was to me the right like it wasn't you know it, it wasn't it was overt but it wasn't beating you over the head with it It wasn't drawing so much attention to it it was just showing you know it was a great example of show don't tell and now i'm taking way too long to explain it um <laughs> the other thing sam is you mentioned that it wasn't a rerun and a recent rewatch of back to the future reminded me that the next generation after me probably doesn't really even understand the concept of a rerun and so that joke may no longer work because the, because the the youth is just as oblivious as the 50s family as to what's a rerun yes that's that's hilarious yeah i mean because like i know the partridge family because they got a new a fresh new syndication run like in the mid 90s and you're exactly right i think that's weird the magical realism thing is an interesting thing to bring up because you know we talked about how it's got some where it's got some origins and and some of the ways we talk about magical realism is perhaps a little bit problematic, but I don't think it is in this way. What I think is really interesting, this is not, this is probably my least favorite of the three. I know Tessa really? and I, yeah, it's I liked Clockers. My favorite of the I liked three. Clockers better. But what I really think Spike Lee should get a, just a ton of credit for in this movie, and it goes back to the framing of the South, it, it goes back to exactly what you just described. Ryan, it's just this idea of when you look back, right? When you look back on the past, you, some of your past experiences, and you start to realize, and I think the word surreal fits really right here. You realize how surreal things were. And what Spike Lee's doing in this movie is depicting that surrealness in those in those different ways. And I think that's really, he captures it visually with the the Southern thing, which you know, like it's fun trying to describe it without like, you know, enough to get yourself in trouble, which is very much me when it comes to framing and such. But he just does such a good job of it in this movie, just showing that thinking about the past and realizing how weird it was because in the present, you didn't have enough. You didn't have enough to really, you might've known it was weird, but you didn't know why. And he does such a good job of depicting that moment of that, that, I, it's weird, but I don't understand why. And that's that's the very close, as you say, to that sense of magical realism. 
okay, but it's but it's happening and it must be fine, but it's weird. It it's a it's an interesting it's it's hard to articulate it exactly, but yeah, I I definitely like I hadn't thought of it that way. But yes. There are two things I want to talk about before we move on to clockers. Uh, the first one is I really think uh, since we're talking about a film that is so centered around this one character, we should talk about Zelda Harris as Troy, who is just such a complex character. I mean, I really liked how you pointed out that in Do the Right Thing, most of the characters are very simple because there are so many characters. Troy is like the opposite of that as a character. I mean, and sh- part of it's because she's based on his sister and his sister helped him write the character. So you get a lot of like that insight. But the fact that she is the only girl in a family of boys, five uh, five brothers, oh my God. And that, you know, she kind of like has that relationship with them where they all are siblings and she does a lot of things with them that, you know, are masculine coded if we want to like gender it that way because that's their relationship, right? Like there's more of them than there are of her but at the same time there's also that tension right she gets called a flat-chested wench by one of her brothers which i laughed very hard at there's so many funny things in this film but she you know she's also dealing with the fact that she you know has a, like her parents do have problems and she's sort of expected to be the one to fix those problems because she is the girl and she does but then she alternates that with this sort of lashing out at that particular role. Like she lies a lot. She tricks people. She gets in trouble, you know? And so it, it it's very interesting to watch the development of this character from that to the person who is like the sole domestic carer in the family after her mom dies. I would easily put this among my favorite child actor performances of all time. I think she does an incredible job and, it's it's one of those again where it's not super flashy about it like while i was watching it i wasn't even thinking of her performance as a performance because this character felt so real and so alive and i think that itself speaks to how good the performance is and i think she does a great job like it it does make me wonder if this was filmed uh, chronologically which i know some directors do with child actors because it's easier for them to sort of track the character's progress in their heads as they're filming rather than jumping back and forth but she did it she does an amazing job i really love the scene where she is raiding her brother's room (laughs) to steal his his buffalo nickels which did seem like a big thing even when i was a kid it was like you know if you got one it was like very special and like you know and she uses it to pay for ice cream like she just uses them like nickels (laughs) (laughs) yes which which i love and she uses it to like you know treat her friend and you know, like, this is a very interesting, it's a very, it, it really fits well with the sort of, with this portrait of, you know, working class, it, a working class black family at this time. And, you know, it's it just, it, it was so interesting. And, and her performance, especially when her brother confronts her, and then later when the mom confronts her, and, you know, she's, she's acting perfectly like a kid would and it just captures that sense of i know i did a wrong thing but i'm not going to admit it until the consequence of admitting it seems worse than the consequence (laughs) of continuing (laughs) to lie about it (laughs) Uh, tessa is this is this burning joe story yeah this actually weirdly reminded me of little women i didn't think about the connection specifically with joe although now i can kind of see it that you've brought it up 
I thought of it more like the fact that this is like a very strange, like eccentric family. Maybe not as eccentric as like the transcendentalists, but like. But who is really? But like the fact that they, like you said, they have their own rituals. They have their own ways of like communicating with each other. They all actually seem pretty smart in terms of like the way that they like inter- like play with each other and so on. They have their own like sitting in front of the television, but they also fight and squabble. And then, of course, I actually thought more of Amy in that moment where she mm-hmm. steals the Buffalo Nichols because really she's getting back at her brother, you know, for calling her names and not letting her use the television the way that she wants to. And so, you know, there is that like. I, I don't know. Like, I don't like always comparing things and seeing like, this is a black version of Little Women because that's clearly not what Spike Lee is doing. But it does remind me of that, like, very, like you said, it's an American, like, sort of sort of trope of, like, looking at this, like, family and the way that they fight, but they all love each other still and the relationships with their parents and the scenes at the dinner table. Like, when one of the kids calls his broken arm an ailment, like, I just, like, like it's so funny. Like I can't, I can't stress enough how funny Spike Lee uh, is. It, by the way, you you probably don't know this if you're listening, and Ryan as well. But Tessa was the kid who wouldn't eat the food and had to sit at the table. Yes, I was. By the way, she has revealed that to me. I, um, She's that kid. I didn't throw up at the table. I want to make that very clear. <laughs> but I was definitely feeling a lot of empathy for that child. The thing that made me the most incensed watching this movie was the one child getting his piece of cake stolen by the dog, getting getting the hat, and then Delroy Lindo being like, all right, well, here's your new piece, and the kid not eating the piece being like, what the hell? That was supposed to be my piece. And then the solution is, well, I'm just going to break it in half, and you can each have half. It's so... That is so unsatisfying and so as like an older, you know, as as being the older child, just very relatable in the sense that like, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why I have to suffer because someone else let the dog get their Listen, piece of cake. Have you ever have you ever been victimized by a dog in this way? Because I have. I have. I, I was attacked by a neighborhood dog at the bus stop and he took me stole my lunch. <laughs> Whole thing. I hope he choked on the plastic bag. My favorite was the look on that dog's face when he took the cake. It was very like, you're not going to do anything about this. Uh, Oh, my God. I've had it. My dog stole part of my tuna fish sandwich once, so I I get it. Well, he probably did you a favor. We had a a dog uh, growing up that would try to pull the socks off your feet as you were walking. (laughs) And if you were carrying food... The food spilling out of your hands was really just a bonus for the dog, who was much faster than any of us. The other thing I wanted to bring up, and you know, as we're talking about tracking this neighborhood over time, the house, the brownstone in this movie that the family lives in, which is at 7 Arlington Place, sold in June of 2013 for $1.7 million. And I think you know, if that's not a clear example of gentrification, then I don't know what is. And like, you know, I've been to Bedside a few times. It's a it's a beautiful neighborhood to, still to this day. It is, you know, very like the architecture is amazing. There's a lot of great restaurants and things there and all that stuff, you know, has existed over time. It's now just that, you know, as the sort of hipster Brooklyn has emerged uh, in nearby neighborhoods it's sort of been spreading 
in Bed-Stuy's direction. And it's just, it's also really interesting to sort of track the development of the neighborhood over these three movies. And it kind of makes me hope that Spike maybe goes back and makes, you know, another movie about Bed-Stuy set now and, you know, really trying to show what that neighborhood is like today. Because I think that would be super fascinating. The brownstone is amazing, like as a set, like I just every single moment in that house, like blew me away. The fact that it's three stories and like to do anything, you have to run up and down three different stories of the house. The just the the pictures on the walls, the furniture, like all of it just felt it. And, and the fact was, is that I think sometimes in movies now we have this these houses that are too even houses with families in them we we have they're too clean and they're too neat like nobody lives in houses like that especially if they have six fucking kids and the fact that this house looks so good but also really looks like six kids live there just the setup of the house when they have that huge fight and they're like playing tug of war with a child down the stairs like all of it is just like so well set up for this story for everybody listening i want to make sure that if you have not crossed New York as a character off your bingo card, we very much did just do that. So I was trying not to say the house was a character, but... Same. <laughs> <laughs> but since you brought it up... No, I, I just like the house. I think it's really okay. interesting. All right. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, let's talk about Clockers, which takes us forward to the 90s in this neighborhood. So I, I very quickly want to skip to the end and just say Mackay Pfeiffer's character, we love to do this at our house. We love to think about headcanon. Yes. So the question is, does Mackay Pfeiffer's character, which of the following does he do as he finally gets his train ride out of New York? Does he, A, go to medical school and become a doctor later to work at County General in Chicago? Or B, Go to a fancy prep school, you know, go back to finish high school, become a basketball player, and become enmeshed with Julia Stiles in an Othello-like story. Or C, does he move to another inner city, befriend a up-and-coming white rapper, and have his real name name-checked in the fictional story in which he plays a fictional character? Which of the following? I mean, surely all of the above. Yeah. yeah. Like, this character goes on perfect. to live a full life. Yeah. <laughs> and it just proves Several that you know, he knew lives, he could have a life know. if he got out. And he truly did. He did a lot. This one is a little different because I feel like out of all these, this is the most genre of, of any of them. Because in a lot of ways, this is an inverted 90s procedural. There's a there's a very violent death at the beginning of the film. What happened? And, you know, it's very much about the cops trying to figure that out. But it's from the point of view of one of the suspects, um, a young black man, man played by Mackay Pfeiffer, who's trying to survive in the projects by hustling. Um, we have Delroy Lindo as Rodney, who's sort of this Fagan-esque character who is clearly recruiting young men from the projects to, to hustle, to clock, clocking, as it were. Strike's brother, who's played by Isaiah Washington, um, I cannot remember the character's name, he uh, confesses to the crime, but the uh, police... Thank you, Victor. I knew it was like something like Victor Frankenstein, because I was literally just working on that. <laughs> but like he confesses to the crime, 
But the police do not believe him because they are convinced that Strike actually killed him. And so there's this like tension through the film about who actually killed him and what are the what is informing what the police are trying to do, what's informing what Strike is trying to do. What were our first thoughts on this film? It's interesting to me, Tessa, that you describe it as a procedural because it, it is, but it doesn't feel like it, or at least it didn't feel like it to me when I was watching it, even though it is all structured around this murder and the investigation from the murder and the fallout from the murder, it does also kind of, it sort of meanders a lot in order to give you the full context of each of these people that are involved in the story. And so it, I like that it wasn't super straightforward, you know, like again, the, the, the murder investigation aspect sort of is, but that is a through line again, in sort of exploring this network of this community and the relationships between the various people in it and the culture around it. And again, to me, like the thing that really, that I really keyed into uh, was the relationship between, between Strike and the young boy whose name I'm now forgetting. Um, uh, that uh, was... Trevor? No, you're No. Yeah, you're right. No, it's Tyrone. Sorry. It's Tyrone. Tyrone. There is yes. a, tr- there is a, a Trevor in yeah. this film, but it's Tyrone. And seeing, you know, a young kid brought into this world and, you know, the conversation that he has with him around, you know, especially when they're talking about you know, he's sort of teaching him the, you know, the sort the, the clocker's trade, so to speak, you know, and the two of them are in that apartment. And, you know, he's kind of like, I know you don't think that this applies to you, but it does. And you need to understand it and you need to be ready for it. And, you know, I think there's a lot of the way that people talk about drug distribution in the city as like a policy problem and things. And like, it really... It feels like it's refuting that, but it's not using, you know, charts or anything. It's just using the sense of the, the character's reality and the showing this kid like, yeah, th- this is how things are. And you need to be prepared for how things are. And it doesn't matter how, whether whether you want to deal with these things or not, you're going to have to. And I think to me that that became sort of the core idea of the movie. And it really informed my understanding of all the characters, even even the cops, you know, and I think that I read a little bit online about how, you know, there's a lot of discussion around why, you know, Harvey Keitel's character makes the choices that he does, especially at the end of the movie. To me, it's, it, it's a, it's just a fascinating depiction. And I don't even, cause I just watched this last night and I don't even know that I have fully formed thoughts about all that, but it absolutely like it, I, it made me just want to watch the movie again, even though, I didn't enjoy this much, as much on first watch as I did uh, Crooklyn. You know, this is one that I feel like if I went back to it, you know, when I watch it a second time, I'll get even that much more out of it because there's so much going on here. That's what struck me and left me about the the movie too. And of course, Strike wants to know as well. I mean, like, why is this happening? I think that's a question that he's really... Well, I think that's his motivation for the entire movie. Like, I think this is somebody who, and we have no idea how long this has been going on prior to the events of the film. It's not like he just woke up one day, right? But this is this mm-hmm. is a person who's trying to figure out, how did I get here? Why is it this way? Like, is really questioning, 
his circumstances and and the things around him and trying to make sense of it and you know talking with the kids one way of doing that you know so he asks at the end and of course Harvey Keitel doesn't want to give him an answer because Harvey Keitel's character does not know the answer I am starting to think after our discussion of do the right thing that that perhaps Harvey Keitel's character is a lot like Sal in some in some ways what I mean by that is thinking about if we could revisit Sal at the period of clockers, that person would spend so much time in vitriol talking about the projects because he would use the projects and the people who live in them, especially people like Strike, as a way of saying, I'm not racist. But those people are not good. Like, I'm not racist. I love the people in my neighborhood. It's those people, right? And and that's that's not acknowledging all of the institutions that are headed up by white people who have created these situations. And and so the reason I see those those two characters as comparable is Harvey Keitel is, I think, a lot more aware of what's actually happening and why than he wants to admit. He can't get past that racist bias that he has just, you know, built in. And so, like, this is this is a character who's also trying to figure out why things are the way they are, except actively trying to push that away. It's like an intrusive thought to Harvey Keitel's character, whereas Mackay Pfeiffer's character, where Strike is obsessed with the answer because it has meaning in his life, whereas for the cop, it will destroy his life. Because if you start, then you question what you do, and it just all unravels from there. Because he's a corrupt cop, but he uses his knowledge of how to be corrupt to make sure that kid doesn't go to jail. That doesn't make him a good person. Well, he's only doing it for another cop, anyway. Well, but the point like, he's is, he's not but, doing it for. The but kid. that's what I'm saying. Like, but he thinks I did a good thing, mm-hmm. and he did. But that doesn't mean he's, you know, he's a terrible person, right? He is so angry that Isaiah Washington's character is going to get out of jail. Even though it, it, it exactly what he said happened, happened. And it, you know, it's just like his, his view of the world is so warped and so weird because he is confronting why things are the way that they are in an intrusive manner, and if he does confront it, it will unravel his entire identity, which is why when Strike asks him the question, he gets so mad, because a part of him knows. I I think that's that's it. That's what I got. The problem with the whole Isaiah Washington Strike thing for Harvey Keitel's character, whose name, again, I feel like I should know. It's just Rocco. Harvey Keitel. Rocco. <laughs> is that it, it goes against a narrative he has about the projects, and that narrative is that gangsters kill other gangsters and ultimately they're just destroying themselves they're all violent we should blow up the projects whatever but we get this from the very beginning when he's looking at the this murder and he's looking at the body and he's they're all making jokes right very racist jokes about uh you know the way that these people kill each other but then to be confronted by isaiah washington's character victor's 
by him saying like I did it, that completely goes against his narrative. Like if somebody who has a family is keeping down two jobs, like is trying to get out of the projects, if he does that instead of Strike, who is the person in his narrative who should have done it, then it just destroys everything that he knows about policing in this neighborhood. And really the end of the film, because it ends with another death of, of a gangster and we we kind of cut out on them making it, it. He's back in the same narrative, right? This is his comfort place. He's able to make those jokes again, right? Because he shipped strike off. Um, and so it, it is a very, it, I think it is just as much about his narrative of like him trying to fit these characters into this narrative, even though they can't be fit into that narrative. Yeah. And in a, in a weird way, this, this feels like, pushback against movies sort of like the the blind side is the biggest one that's coming to mind where you take a black character and the whole point of the movie is wow like look what this look what this one black person was able to do and here's this positive example that we can raise up and this is like a very dark twist on that where you know because things don't fit Harvey Keitel's presumed narrative of the way that that the world works, it's completely confounding. And so, you know, it, it's it's like turning that, you know, inside out, where it's like this one, quote unquote, good, you know, I'm using good as the way that, you know, some people would describe that there are the the good blacks and the bad blacks, you know, this one good black person did a bad thing. And how do I reconcile that with what I think happened because that's what that's what happens in all my other cases. And, you know, again, it's investigating bias, but not, you know, it's not a movie about like it is and it isn't about bias. You know what I mean? There's there's a little bit more on the subtextual side, I think, around, you know, police bias. And I think that's what's so what's so great about Spike as a storyteller is that all that stuff is woven in so well that it doesn't necessarily need to be obvious, which I know is one of the big critiques of Black Klansmen, which, you know, ends with, you know, a montage of white supremacy, including Charlottesville, and people being like, this is really on the nose. And I think, you know, if I am putting myself in Spike Lee's, you know, if I'm putting myself in his Jordans, you know, (laughs) I'm going to say, yeah, well, you didn't get the message from the last 20 years of me making movies. So now I have to be super obvious if I think you're going to get the memo. The other really subtle thing that I I really liked in this film is the motivations of both Strike and Victor and the way that both of these characters are under so much stress, but they don't ever actually make that text until like the end. Like Strike clearly has an undiagnosed ulcer that he has probably from the amount of anxiety and stress that he has. And there's a lot of studies about how black men especially tend to die younger because of stress-related illnesses. I mean, he's like throwing up blood, like, you know, near the end of the film. But that never, there, it's never said out loud, right? It's just he has a stomach problem. But that's, if you know anything about what's happening, you know that ulcers are generally caused by stress. Um, probably poor diet too, but that's like a whole other thing. But like, Victor is also under stress, but it's a different kind of stress. It's the stress of trying to provide for his family, but it's also the stress of basically being called a race traitor by what he has to do to provide for that family. Like, you know, 
he does not called an Uncle Tom, but he is called the other term, which I can't repeat on this podcast. But like basically that was what he's accused of in various situations in both his job. And so, you know, it, it is very interesting to kind of compare what both these characters feel like they have to do, given that amount of stress and given that amount of anxiety as well. And again, it's not text. It's just there. Right. Kind of between us and the and what's happening on the screen. Yeah, and I'm I'm really doing my best to not bring up ER too many times. <laughs> no, please do. Please this do. episode. But, you know, the way Victor's character reminded me of Eric LaSalle's Dr. Benton on ER in the mm-hmm. way in his in that character's personal approach to being black, basically. And I think the way that ER writes Benton's character, uh, I'm I'm in season five watching for the first time so i don't have the whole the whole arc but you know just seeing the way that his relationship with his own blackness and the show's relationship with his blackness sort of Mm. evolves and starts and stops over the course of the you know four and a half seasons i've seen is absolutely fascinating and then there's an episode i watched very recently that reminded me of the way that harvey Keitel's cop character acts in this movie and that's with Noah Wiley's Dr. Carter, there's a young black boy who has leukemia and his insurance won't admit him. And so, because uh, there's no diagnosis that's that makes this kid eligible to be admitted to the hospital for his leukemia treatment because there's an experimental thing or, you know, whatever. And so Carter decides to lie. It says that the kid's severely dehydrated because he threw up the one time. And the kid's mom overhears him explaining this to his student. She gets furious because she's like, you don't understand. Like, you are you think you're doing the right thing here. But you're not because, you know, his treatments have already been denied twice. And if they find out that there's any sort of fraud, they're not going to, you mm-hmm. know, they're going to cancel his coverage entirely. And then he won't get any, any health care. And right now I'm waiting for him to get sick enough for his insurance to actually do something about it. But that's never going to happen if you are kind of meddling in the way. And what I appreciated about that episode is it like, you know, Carter is a very cocky character uh, at this point in the show shows time. But I think the show leaves it ambiguous as to, you know, it's up, it's up for you as the audience to decide, did, was he trying to do the right thing? Did he overstep? You know, it leaves it sort of open-ended. And I think that again, that sort of how we as individual people nav- navigate systemic problems and where we need to buck the system or use the system against itself or figure out where our personal ethical lines are i think it's it's super fascinating and that comes up a bunch of times in this movie and i just really you know like i said i really appreciate the complexity with all this here i want to preface really quickly by saying that i think the comparison of victor to peter benton is very sound and and i think of course, the problem with ER is their lack of or refusal to commit to telling a good Peter Benton story, which I know Eric LaSalle really got sick and tired of eventually. But having prefaced by saying you are correct, I think that's really interesting and it's well worth bringing up ER. I do want to say in the most Eric Andre way, what a bold move of you. To bring up Isaiah Washington's character 
compare him to a black doctor on a medical show, but not the one that he played. What a bold <laughs> move of you. But you are right, though. I think it's interesting that, like, the plot of this movie, as far as the murder story, should be so simple. Like, this person dies. Someone confesses to his murder. That person is tried or put in jail or, you know, whatever. That gets resolved somehow. But because Harvey Keitel's character cannot, like, refuses to believe this person's confession... It gets so messy and all of these other things end up happening. But I just love that at the end, it's like, no, it was Victor the whole time. Like he was telling the truth. See, see like, what to happens? To me, that is such an interesting inversion. See of, what happens when you interrogate your beliefs? Just all kinds of shit happens. That's yeah. why we shouldn't do it. I love the line where, you know, they're sort of confronting a Harvey Cut and they're like, look, a black man tells you anything and you don't believe him. Like, he can confess to the murder, he can not confess, doesn't really matter, because you've already made up your mind, mm -hmm. and that's like, you know, that is what this movie is about, and that, that revelation floored me, because it is constructed in that way, that you think that, you know, Victor is trying to just help, you know, and, and sort of take this take this on, and getting that revelation, it's just, it's absolutely fascinating, and I think, again, like, I'm still processing it, but in the moment, it's it's a great storytelling twist it's a really sure. great directorial choice you know one of the things that a director has to decide is what to show and what not to show and what spike lee does not show that we know he does not show is who commits the crime we are led to believe that mckay pfeiffer is going to do it he puts him in a physical in a block blocking way puts him in a physical position mm -hmm. that we expect that to happen, but then purposely does not show us. And so that's supposed to lead us, lead us to the belief that Strike has done it. But in order for that to be true, we also have to believe that Spike Lee has chosen to not show us a scene in which Victor and Strike work this out. Where they get their story. We, there has to be more that happened between the two of them than what we were shown in order for this to make any sense. And I thought about that several at several points in the movie. I'm like, he didn't show us who pulled the trigger. He also didn't show us this conversation that would have had to have existed. This doesn't feel right. Now, I'm not, I did not guess the ending. I did not. I want to be very clear about that. But, But I was thinking about that throughout the movie. I'm like... We have not been shown something purposefully, and I think we're inventing something that may not have actually happened, which I think was very clever. Well, I mean, it's a trope, though, for a detective character to receive a confession and to be like, that's not what happened. And so we're trained as audiences to want Harvey Keitel to be right, right? We want there to be more to it than just this confession. And... I think it'd be interesting to watch this movie again and just listen to Isaiah Washington's confession. Like, because the way that it's sort of played from Hi Harvey Keitel's perspective is like, oh, he's just saying it like this to deflect. You know, he's saying like this to cover. But you could probably watch this again and actually see him legitimately trying to convince Harvey Keitel that that's mm -hmm. what happened. Like, you know, I shot him. I did this. You know, what else do you want me to say? <laughs> Like, it, it is a very interesting way of playing with that trope. Yeah, and I, you know, over the years, 
Spike Lee has also been accused of making movies from a black perspective aimed at white audiences. And, you know, I think, you know, if that's the the case, sure. But uh, I think this is an interesting example of that potentially being true because he is sort of playing, you know, our own internalized biases against us, both from, you know, our experience with the genre and our experience, you know, especially as Americans when it comes to race. And I think that is so clever. And again, it's it's prompting along with do the right thing. It, I, I think it it's intended to prompt self investigation on our part as the audience in a very clever and very fun way while also being just a really great genre piece. Yeah. If, if you didn't believe Isaiah Washington's confession, it, you're implicated in some sense. Right. I, I don't know that Spike Lee's trying to be that hard on his audience. I don't think Spike, Spike Lee has ever really, except for maybe Black Klansman, as you pointed out earlier, been very hard on a white viewer. I think he's tried his best to let that. And Spike Lee genuinely does have anger. Why he wouldn't, I can't imagine. But tried to be very balanced between that sense of anger and outrage as a filmmaker and one where he's trying to communicate the thing that really bothers me about this movie like in a good way like i spike lee wants me to be bothered by this and i very much was mckay pfeiffer never dissembles he is always telling you exactly how he feels and and tessa as you pointed out it's happening in a very bodily way too, but take that out of the picture for a second. He is always telling people exactly what he thinks. This is a guy who got, you know, picked up by Fagan right. and turned into uh, a, a corner Charles kid. Yeah. And but he really just loves trains and like wants to like be a good person. He thinks he is a good person. He knows that where he's at is not allowing him to to do that. And he, he keeps trying to tell people, like, I don't, I'm done. I don't do this anymore. I, I'm not, I'm it not a rat. It becomes almost comic, like the fourth time he says That's it, where I'm he's saying. like, I don't do that. You but know? It, it really bothered me. Yeah. It, it bothered me because Spike Lee knows we have to think. Really? Are you really? People say that all the time, which they do. But why can't it be true? Why shouldn't it be the first place to go? You know, it's like the cop, like Harvey Keitel's character. When somebody says they did something, why do you not believe them? When somebody said they didn't do something, why do you not believe them? Because all of these reasons. Well, if we spent enough time, if we spent a two-hour runtime of a movie going through all the reasons why that's bullshit, maybe you'll see. Which I think very much is what what Clockers is in a way. That's why I really liked it. Like I think Do the Right Thing is the best movie of the three because, you know, you think about. I told Tessa. I said you think about King of the World. You think about the the kids on the bicycle with ET going across the silhouette against the moonlight. You think about the most iconic images in film. That trash can's one of them going through the window that that spike lee comes out very early in his career and makes this really iconic movie it's an enjoyable movie too uh, that's impressive 
So, I mean, I can't say that it, there's any better movie among the three that we watched than that one. But Clockers is the one that, that I think is probably going to stick with me the longest. It brings up the same questions, just in a very uncomfortable, a more uncomfortable way. Uh, a way that implicates certain members of the audience in a way that Do the Right Thing doesn't. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. And, you know, I, the first time I watched Do the Right Thing, I expected it to be angrier, you know, to be more accusatory, which, you know, in part is probably why it took me a little longer than I should have to watch it the first time. You know, and, and Sam, you, you mentioned the, the train stuff, which I, I have to talk about because that was the thing in this movie that, like, it made me really sit up and be like, okay, this means something because there's no other reason for it to be here because... I don't associate New York living with elaborate model train setups that doesn't, you know, or like it doesn't, the space is just, it's not, it's not a practical hobby. You know, you fly kites because you go to the park and they don't take up much room when you get home. What I love about it is a, a, a couple of things. There's, there, there's a bunch of stuff going on in there. And the first thing I thought of was as a person who is frequently stressed and overwhelmed and also has the desire to feel like I'm in control, even when I'm not in control, uh, I do a lot of Lego building. And <laughs> as as a suburban white guy, I have a, uh, a Lego city that my wife and I are working on in our basement. <laughs> it doesn't have a train yet, but that's on the list for this year. And I just, I, I just identified so strongly with that impulse because... I am a person where my brain is constantly moving at 100 miles an hour and never has as far back as I can remember to being a little kid. And sitting down and doing, you know, building a Lego set or doing a model kit really does help me be present. It's as close to mindfulness as I get. Because if I do mindfulness and I'm not doing anything, my brain is just like a pinball machine going all over the place. Whereas that is a, a physical thing in front of me that I can put on a podcast or some music and just take a deep breath and slow myself down and enjoy the experience of doing the thing. And then, you know, enjoying rearranging the thing and playing with the thing and, you know, figuring out what I'm going to do with it next. And, you know, all these little projects and things. And I think that sense of it, it told me so much about who this person is and how they experience life and, and how that's a refuge. And then, you know, trains themselves uh, are also because it could it could be any hobby at that point. But trains also have a lot of meaning. And then when we got to the end of the movie, I was like, oh, yes, this is clearly, you know, very purposeful and very, very intentional because Trains for a long time represented progress in American society. You know, they are part of not the westward expansion of territory, but the westward movement of people was obviously, you know, really accelerated by, you know, trains going out west and everything as as we see this character uh, traveling on at, at the end of the movie. And it's it's forward motion. It's the first form of mass transit, the first time you could move faster than a horse. And so it it really is you know, indelibly tied to the idea of progress as America and, and what does that mean, as well as the opportunity of, of escaping and sort of settling somewhere else and starting over and starting anew. Like that final sequence feels so different from the rest of the movie. There is a sense of calm and a sense of hope that Strike doesn't have at any other point in this movie. And it was like, 
it was almost like a reward for watching it because parts of this movie are are very stressful to watch and by the end i was like oh okay i feel better like and not just for the character that he was able to get out but just it was that sense of release of of like this is over for me at least but yeah. you know obviously it's not over for all the people who are still there and you know we also see another murder kind of starting this whole cycle again but uh it was just it absolutely floored me as a way to end this movie and really you know made me sort of stop and and think about how it was making me feel and and why and why it was included there in the first place i think that's all a really good way to put this i mean you did leave out that after world war ii in the 1950s you left out that part of the thing I love I love that he repeats the entire thing that Strike yeah. has taught him. But I mean that It's so great. Yeah, and I said to Tessa I was like he's never been on a train before. Like this is somebody who is obsessed with trains that this is like this is the look of somebody who's getting to do the thing for the first time and it's just it's so exactly what you said when you were talking about the idea of you know a hobby as you know, and for me, it's it's become cross-stitching. It's something you can do that allows your kind of mind to settle and, you know, things like that. It reminded me of of this discourse that happened a few months ago that I am still, every time I think about it, I'm like, okay, if this, this is not real, and if it is, I have several follow-up questions. Do you remember the discourse about people who have inner monologues versus who don't? I just, I was like, you, you got, first of all, people don't do that. I'm not sure. I don't believe that. And if it's true, I understand something about myself that I didn't before. Strike, it definitely has an inner monologue, right? I mean, if, if you accept that premise is true, if you accept that there are people in this world who have a constant stream of consciousness monologue that they are aware of and people who don't and the people who don't outnumber the people who do if you believe that and i'm not sure that i can that explains strikes character very very well i mean it and it, and it really just that goes along the lines of what you're talking about it makes that train it just it really puts Sorry to pun on Legos. It really puts the pieces together <laughs> here. It does. It does. I. I. It, it, it's. It's interesting. It really. That's a really. I, you know what? By the way, I'll say this too. Mackay Pfeiffer has not had the career that he should have had. Agreed. I knew that since Pratt on ER. Like, oh, it was such a shitty movie. For fuck's sake! For a minute, there was like ten things was great. The, the Baz, Romeo and Juliet was great. For a moment there, I thought we were going to get some really great teen adaptations. And O was just like, oh no. It was so bad. As problematic as it is, I still stand by She's the Man. But that's neither I love Mackay Pfeiffer. And I actually love Julia Stiles too, by the way. <laughs> I think she should have also had a better career than she has. I don't know. I, I, I Man, you'd have to try really hard to convince me the best character work isn't happening in this movie. Of the three. There's a few things we have to cover before we finish. One is the soundtrack. So we talked about the soundtrack for the other films. You've already mentioned Seal. I mentioned it. I'm done. Seal makes a lot of appearances in this. <laughs> no kiss from a rose. 
Just early seal. Yet, sadly. <laughs> I mean, there's a different movie you can go to if you want Kiss from a Rose. We'll be talking about that in December. Did you have any thoughts about the soundtrack, Ryan? Nothing nothing to add because I think Sam really nailed the the it's not the soundtrack you would expect. And I think again, that just underlines the whole point of the movie in, in such a you know, an eloquent an eloquent way. I think it's hilarious, and I turned and said this to Sam as the movie was starting. The first scene of this film is Strike and a lot of his friends, uh, you know, they're waiting to kind of conduct these uh, these deals that happen in the park. They are arguing while they're waiting about music. They're arguing about uh, different hip-hop artists that they like and which one's better and all of this stuff. To me, and this is where I said he was going to come up again, this is the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. But better, I think. Um, there's, there's a lot. It's kind of got that vibe to it of like people in like very incongruous situation talking about music. But what else are they going to talk about? Like if you really think about it. So it, it was a really fun moment for me. Great foreshadowing, Tessa. Yeah. <laughs> they were not talking about the significance of like a virgin and yeah, what true. it might possibly mean. The other thing I was going to mention, um, just because. For our Soprano stands out there, Michael Imperioli is in this film, a, playing a corrupt cop. I missed my hot dummy, but you know hmm. this is about four years out from from the Sopranos, and uh, it's a fun performance. He's a terrible character, but it's a fun performance. He from is him. still much like much like his character on the Sopranos. He is still writing scripts in his mind that are stupid. <laughs> He's just living it out in this one. He's like, I think this will work. <laughs> I have to also say, just based on this and do the right thing, does Spike Lee just call John Turturro when he needs a racist asshole character? Like, he's yes. like, hey, like, come play this asshole on my movie. I don't know. I just felt, I mean, he's good at it. I just felt a little bad for him it's, after seeing him play this character. It's twice. important. You have to have a guy. You have to have a guy for that. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts on Spike Lee and these three films that we have watched. Definitely need to see even more of his work now. Uh, I think, you know, I I loved both Crooklyn and Clockers watching them for the first time. I didn't really know much about what they were about before I sat down to watch them, which was more fun because, again, I was kind of figuring out what the movie was while I was watching it. And uh, I really think that that, you know, Spike, Spike, he his reputation is well deserved. You know, we, we we kind of started this conversation talking about how, you know, he he is one of the guys. You know, he is one of the the directors that has sort of shaped the way that we think about film. And I think you know he probably deserves even more credit than he actually gets. Discovering that this was like a a bedside trilogy, and you know. Like I said, I just maybe want to dive even deeper into more of his work because I think there is sometimes the approach by, you know, people who are into film that films by non-white, non-male, you know, or directors, filmmakers uh, are kind of like vegetables movies where you're like, well, I have to see it because I want to be a person who, you know, has seen these movies. And, you know, I don't want to limit myself to just the white guys that, you know, I got into movies because I like their movies. Uh, and I think one of the things about Spike Lee and about a lot of other filmmakers, but 
since we're talking about him, I can say specifically with Spike Lee is that his movies are extremely entertaining and fun to watch. And, you know, they can be, they show that you can make a movie that is about, you know, difficult systemic issues to make a movie about and really explore them in a way that is both entertaining and thought provoking at the same time. And I think that is absolutely one of his strengths. And, you know, I would rewatch all three of these uh, again in in a heartbeat because they they offer so much both in terms of being thought provoking and again just being fun movies with great performances great dialogue there's so many like memorable dialogue moments uh, you know and I think the on again off again sometimes rivalry slash feud between uh, Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino is you know is another fascinating lens to look at these through and having i recently rewatched reservoir dogs and pulp fiction for the first time in, in several years despite them being some of my favorite movies tarantino's approach to race in those movies it's you know people always that conversation about oh this could never get made today it's like i don't know if those if reservoir dogs and pulp fiction scripts get to shooting with all of those racial slurs intact now and the fact that they came out in the 90s and that was not the only discourse about those movies is just a fascinating thing to think about we ate good this week if 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 to to continue with your vegetable thing we ate really well this week (laughs) a lot of steak if you're not a vegetarian if you are i don't know whatever metaphor works there i black eyed peas maybe uh yeah well (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Everyone else likes them, Sam. <laughs> I don't dislike them, okay? All right? <laughs> I agree with everything that you said. And and I will add to that by saying that, you know, it's times like this, you know, we've spent a couple hours, actually over a couple of hours, talking about these movies, and there was so much to talk about, and I feel like my understanding of them has been enriched by the process about talking about them it really makes me think we should have a podcast where we talk about these things (laughs) and then i remembered that's what we have which i think really speaks like good for us good job kind of to build off of what you both said i think that there is a tendency and i talked about this in the in the godfather episode too um like you said when when stories are told that aren't about white men, there is this tendency to be like, oh, that's a black story or that's a woman's story or whatever. It's not universal, right? It's only white men's stories that are universal. And one, I would definitely challenge that premise that you don't have to enjoy stories that are universal in order to get them. I think, I mean, there are a lot about these movies that I did not get. I didn't grow up in Bed-Stuy uh, during any of these decades and I am not black, um, but there was enough that I recognized in these movies that I was able to laugh. I was able to dissect them. I was able to interrogate them. And I think that it's a mistake to think about these stories as just black stories, even though they are very much about uh, what it's what it means to be black, especially in in the U.S. But I he is just such a consummate filmmaker and I am like kind of angry that I didn't know about him more before, you know, the last couple of years. I would definitely put these up there. I mean, Crooklyn is definitely my second favorite of his after The Five Bloods. So like I am I am very excited to to watch more of his films as well because like you said it is very much a part of um 
I don't like using the word canon, but I'm going to U.S. film canon. Of course, we're we're talking about this like, oh, like he's so underrated. He's maybe underrated like in a certain part of the the uh, the population. But I feel like amongst a lot of black viewers, this is like he's very much esteemed to where he needs to be. So, you know, it is it's very interesting to look at it through that lens as well. Did he won the Oscar for writing, didn't he? For Black Klansman, right? Yeah, it was the screenplay Oscar. Uh, and he also said that he was more upset by Driving Miss Daisy winning the Oscar than him not being nominated for Do the Right Thing. So, I mean, that's that's the other thing. Like, you know, talking about him being underrated. He has won an Oscar. Like, and 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 we shouldn't hold that up as the be-all, end-all of recognition and worth. And we, the three of us, do not, to be clear. But it is a marker of something. And whatever that something is, he has been recognized for it. However, it wasn't for directing. Should he have won Best Director for any of the years he was nominated? Or should he have won Best Director? I mean, that's, that's a question that a lot of directors are plagued by and people who love films are plagued by but I, I mean we're looking at a director category this year that reflects the same kind of problems you know that it goes back to your eating vegetables thing ryan and and so it's not that it's bad that he hasn't won best director or that he's won an oscar but it was for writing not for directing but it does point to something and it's not being underrated necessarily but it is it's it's in the same neighborhood well and also i mean we'll talk more about this later but think about the film that he won for black klansman that is a much more easy to categorize film for white audiences than do the right thing is or crooklyn or even Mm -hmm. defive bloods so it's much easier for them to say, oh, we know what this film is, and it fits into, <laughs> to go back to Clockers, it fits into our narrative about Black filmmakers a lot easier than some of his other films do. Yeah, and I, I do think it's interesting, and I know there are other examples, despite me not being able to think of them off the top of my head, of people who sort of have this acclaimed outsider status and move into becoming sort of a known quantity elder statesmen without ever actually having the middle part of being wildly successful at their quote unquote prime. Um, you know, and, and you can kind of look at the people who have won honorary Oscars, but not competitive Oscars as maybe a short, a short way to do that in the world of film. But I do think that is, that is sort of where Spike is at this point, whereas he's so broadly, appreciated and valued by certain segments of the wider population by certain segments of the oscar voting population let's say without ever actually crossing over into being someone like he's someone you would kind of assume that has like at least two or three oscars if you didn't know better and certainly would have been nominated a lot more based on his reputation alone but it's just sort of interesting to see that trajectory for him i'm looking forward to the next time we have one of these conversations, which will be after the Oscars, as I mentioned earlier, we'll have a chance to talk about the movies that were snubbed. At, and I think with with The Woman King, we have a director who is, if not already in that category that you mentioned, going to be there real soon. And I think I, I'm looking forward to having continuing 
the discussion of, of things that you just brought up. And I think it's really good year to talk about those, especially in light of to Leslie, which I will get into, but I'm looking forward to having that discussion with you. Sam, do you want to talk about what we're doing next week? That's right. I just gave myself my own segue. (laughs) But before we get to talking about the Oscars and snubs, yeah, I did that. We're going to be talking about another award show that's happening in February, the Grammys. Now, do I have my act together enough that we're actually going to record this episode or release it before the Grammy Awards? No, but that's okay. Because the experiment here is having as many of our regulars as we can conjo- as we can cajole into doing so. We've already heard from we have we have some stuff from Melissa already. Melissa I'm, already sent I me her audio so file. <laughs> excited for Melissa to be able to talk about Machine Gun Kelly on this very podcast. <laughs> but we're going to talk about a lot of the Grammy categories, the nominees uh, irrespective of who wins or not, it the Grammys are a very interesting award show exercise because it's an exercise in what do they think the youth are listening to, and for for those of us and Ryan and I have actually talked about this quite a bit recently, who are either always we're always already out of touch or or becoming that way or tapping into music that you know might be more of the discourse today that we weren't aware of but hey we like it anyway you know just those different approaches to music i think the grammys ultimately don't matter as an award show very few award shows matter as award shows but the grammys don't matter as an award show as much as they do an interesting discourse on music that you ignore at your own peril. It's a list. It doesn't matter, but you shouldn't ignore it. And that's what the Grammys are. <laughs> so we'll be talking about that next week. All right. <laughs> where can people find us? Ryan, where can people find you online and in their headphones? Uh, sure. You can find me personally on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at Silver Whatever. Find my writing on moviejohn.com. That's movie, J-A-W-N, since you guys are always good at reminding me that not everybody knows how to spell that outside of the Philly area. (laughs) We also do a quarterly print zine. So the new issue is just out. We're working hard on our next one, and uh, I'll have words in both. Hey, I'll be in that next scene. That'll be fun. (laughs) I'm talking about Darren Aronofsky, so everybody's going to enjoy it. That's something I know about an Aronofsky film. Everybody likes it. Everybody has a good time. It's fun. (laughs) Not controversial at At all. all. (laughs) You know who's not controversial, though? Marissa Tomei. Oh, because you're talking about the wrestler. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, okay. Took me a second. (laughs) Please don't do anything. You can find me on Twitter at same (laughs) underscore Morris9. You can find me on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. As Ryan mentioned, also on Movie John, I have no other podcast to plug, unlike Tessa. You can find me on Twitter, Storygraph, and Letterboxd at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are talking about all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. Well, you can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club, on, on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. 
You can also find my writing in Movie John as well. We'd like to know your thoughts about Spike Lee. Are there any other of his films that we have not mentioned on this podcast that we should watch? What you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, you can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, where you'll also find the link to join our Discord community that will also be in the episode notes. You can also email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Yay, perfect.